0: Where are we this morning? We are just zipping along. I'm now ordering reference materials and stuff for the series and Acts because I actually believe I may actually get there now. Uh, this will be a milestone. Like I said, I tried teaching, getting teaching Matthew three times, never got through it. My church closed before I could finish it the last time. Maybe that's what did it. Where's yeah? See? Oh. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, so we're in ending up the end of chapter 26 and moving on into chapter 27 this morning. So we're starting at 26.57. Those who had seized Yeshua led him off to uh, Kayafa, the Kohan Haggadal, where the Torah teachers and the elders were assemblies. And Kepha followed him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the Kohan Haggadal. And then he went inside and sat down with the guards to see what the outcome would be. The head of the Kohanim and the whole Sanhedrin looked for some false evidence against Yeshua so that they might put him to death. But they didn't find any, even though many liars came forward to give testimony. At last, however, two people came forward and said, This man said, I can tear down God's temple and build it again in three days. The Kohan Hagadal stood up and said, Have you nothing to say to the accusation these men are, these men are making? Yeshua remained silent. The Kohen Haggadal said to him, I'll put you under the oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Mashiach, the son of God. And Yeshua said to him, the words are your own. But I tell you that one day you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the Haggadah and coming down from the clouds of heaven. And at this, the Kohen Haggadal tore his robes. Blasphemy, he said. Why do we still need witnesses? You heard him blaspheme. What is your verdict? Guilty, they answered. He deserves death. Then they spit in his face, pounded him with their fists, and those who were beating him said, Now you, Messiah, prophesy to us who hit you at that time. Kepha was sitting outside the courtyard when a servant girl came to him. You too were with Yeshua from Galileel, she said, but he denied in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about. He went out onto the porch and another girl saw him and said to the people there, This man was with Yeshua of Nazareth. And again he denied it, saying, I don't know the man. After a little while, the bystanders approached Kepha and said, you must be one of them, your accent gives you away. This time he began to invoke a curse on himself as he swore, I don't know that man, and immediately a rooster crowed. Kepha remembered what Yeshua had said, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and cried bitterly. Early in the morning, all the head Kohanim and the elders met to plan on how to bring about Yeshua's death. They put him in chains and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. John, It was a hoarse, gutterable whisper, unrecognizable. John, is that you? John had been hurrying through the narrow streets of the lower city. He froze and flattened himself to a wall. The night was impenetrable. John, son of Zebedee, where are you? The young man almost crouched down in order to hide. Instead, he surprised himself by calling out, Who's that? Who's there? The whisper stopped, and except for a distant clatter of running feet, the city was still as stone. John suffered a moment of panic. Then a hand grabbed his shoulder. He whirled and delivered a blow to the side of someone's head. It cracked his knuckles, and he yelped. The voice said, Relax, it's me, Simon. Simon, John snapped. What's the matter with you? Sorry, said Simon. Where are you going? John rubbed his hand and began to walk at a quick pace. Simon followed. I know you've got some sort of plan, he said. John bent his elbows and started to trot. Simon puffed harder, uh, ran too. First, you went towards Bethany like the rest, Simon said. But then you stopped. I saw you. You turned round and came back to the city. I followed you. You knocked at someone's door. Who was that? I saw him rush out ahead of you, throwing on his robes as he went. You're going after him now, right? Yes, Simon, and if I don't get there when he does, I'll miss my chance. You've already taken more time than I can spare. John broke into a steady running. Gut where, Simon called. What chance? The bigger man was having trouble keeping up. To be with him. Him? Who? Jesus. To be with Jesus. Jesus? Where? The high priest's palace. Jesus, Simon explained. That's exactly what I thought. But John said nothing now. He was running swiftly up the ancient steps to Mount Zion. Simon gasping for air fell further and further back. Okay, as we move further into the trials, I'm going to move beyond Matthew to, to encompass as much of the events as I can. So we'll look at the other gospel passages as well. And so we're going to be jumping back and forth a bit, trying to get an overall view of the, of the two trials, the Jewish one and the Gentile or the Roman one. So I'm not sure quite exactly how long this is going to take, but we'll see <laughs> so the first trial is is the Jewish one, and we'll read the appropriate passages. I showed you this one last week. basically, there's within this very short window there's the two trials and six appearances first and and the and the passages are matthew twenty six mark fourteen luke twenty two John eighteen the Jewish trials first before Aeneas, then before Caiaphas. Then before the Sanhedrin, those two overlap pretty much. And then the the civil trial is Pilate. Then Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, and Herod sends him back to um, Pilate. Also, we, ha- we haven't made much distance. Uh, we started off in the garden, point number one. And today we're only going to make it as far as the palace of the high priest, number two. And so that's those are the areas that we're going to look at, or that's the area we're going to look at this morning. Now, just for some clarity, I want to read a little extended section, sort of an introduction on all of this from Garthur's uh, commentary on Matthew. He says, Jesus had two major trials, one Jewish and religious, and the other Roman and secular. Because Rome reserved the right of execution to its own courts and administrators, the Sanhedrin were not allowed to dispense capital punishment. The fact that it did so on several occasions as the Stonian of Stephen doesn't prove the legality of it. It's likely, however, that many illegal executions by the Sanhedrin were simply overlooked by Roman authorities for the sake of political expediency. For so them the loss of a single life was a small price to pay in order to keep peace and order. The only blanket exception that Rome granted was for summary execution of a Gentile who trespassed on a restricted area of the temple. It's also significant that both the Jewish religious and the Roman secular trials of Jesus had three phases, meaning that within 12 hours, Jesus' faced legal proceedings on six separate occasions before his crucifixion. The Jewish trial began with his being taken before the former high priest, Anais, in the middle of the night. Anais then sent him to the presiding high priest, Caiaphas, who quickly convened the Sanhedrin at his own house. Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin met a second time. After daylight on Friday morning. So that's the first tr- group of trials. And it's interesting that Ananias is identified as the former high priest. Caiaphas is the high priest because besides the fact that Ananias is Caiaphas' father-in-law, the two seem to make some decisions together and and almost for practical purposes were functioning as dual high priests. Maybe since he was father-in-law, might have been dueling. But we start in verse 57, which says, Those who arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, and the teachers of the law and the elders were assembled. But actually, what you've got to do is go back over to John and look at John 18, 12, 14, and get the more direct flow. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials, remember we said that the ones that came to the garden to get him, were the the Roman soldiers that had been placed around that helped out or protected the temple, as well as the uh, the temple police, which is what John is saying here. They bound him and brought him first to Anais, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it would be good if a man died for the people. We talked about that, whether that was prophetic or... Him being cynical, it still was prophetic. That statement is recorded in John 11:50, where Caiaphas says, Don't you realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish? His thinking may have been keep the uprising down because otherwise Rome is going to come in and interfere. The Holy Spirit is clearly saying, hey, this is what's happening here. The Christ is dying not just for the nation, but for all peoples. So it is, I always find it interesting, and you find this a number of places in Scripture, when you will have enemies or pagans or even the unreligious making these statements that they have no clue that the Holy Spirit is speaking through them and speaking prophetically. Of course, if he could speak through Balaam's mule, I guess he can talk through pretty much anybody. So maybe we do need to listen to our leaders. Oh, never mind. And it's only John that discusses really this first hearing. It's interesting. It's not found in any of the synoptic gospels. But in John 18, 19 through 24, we we read the following. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. And Jesus answered to him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews came together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus on his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I say is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I say is right, why do you strike me? And then Ananias sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, they could have said this is the high priest because he was high priest emeritus, just like all the living presidents are still introduced as presidents but like i said it seems like if you look at all the passages together that they were almost sort of jointly functioning it'd be really interesting to know what ananias had on his son-in-law but anyway um but he was being di- ananias is being disingenuous here in this first trial everybody especially among the the religious leaders knew very well what jesus had been teaching They'd either been there themselves, they reported it, and they knew it accurately. This is part of the problem we have when he's brought up before Caiaphas, when they can't find suborn perjury from anybody that'll even stick when they're trying to rig the trial. And so Jesus is saying, hey, he's been, what they're really trying to do, and the only way they're going to try to really get him nailed, because remember, they've got to get Rome to go along with this, is to try to convict him of sedition against Rome. And there was a lot of that going on at this time. And where would that be going on? Behind closed doors, secret meetings, planning the zealots, planning on how we could overthrow Rome. So this is why this, what, what are you really teaching? What they're saying is, yeah, we know what you've said in public, but we want to know about the seditious statements you're making to overthrow Rome behind closed doors. Because really, their thinking is pretty much along the same lines that the disciples is. In that, they're concerned about him being the political Messiah and taking away their power. See, everybody's really on the same page: the disciples, the religious leaders, the wrong page. But everybody's still on it. The disciples see it as a positive, and and so do some of the zealots. Jesus is going to overthrow uh, you know the government and we're gonna Israel's gonna rule again and that's good the religious leaders see exactly the same thing but they see that as a threat to their power because the people are following him and they're afraid that there's finally gonna be a popular revolution and what's most likely gonna happen is Rome is gonna have to come in and shut the whole thing down and then who knows what but there, nobody's getting it His his followers his enemies his followers aren't getting it because as we've seen the Holy Spirit isn't letting them get it okay His enemies don't get it because, let's face it, most people think in terms of what they would do, somebody else is going to do. And they're trying to hold on power, so they assume anybody else that's coming along is going to want to get power, and they'll lose theirs. So he knows what's being said out in public. He's trying, in effect, and that's what this whole religious trial is, really, is to get Jesus to an effect confess to something that they can bring to the Romans that the Romans are going to be willing to put him to death over. Because let's face it, they're not going to be concerned about in-house theological debates. They couldn't care less. They already figure these people are weird. They wish they didn't have to deal with them. And the last thing they're going to do is get mixed up in religious debates with them. All of these trials are illegal for so many reasons, but especially the Jewish trials, they are violating so many guidelines here For example, the soldier hitting Jesus, they had no right to physically attack him. They had no right to bring him in privately. There was no private behind closed doors justice. The court system was very similar to ours in the sense of you were innocent until proven guilty. They did not follow the Napoleonic code, which would have been really hard to do without a time machine, but they didn't follow that guilty until proven innocent. You were innocent until proven guilty. So that's why anybody's doing behind the closed door stuff, It's Ananias, it's Caiaphas, it's the Sanhedrin. They're the ones that are hiding this from the public. We already know why. They took him in the garden so the public wouldn't know. They're running this quick kangaroo courts at night so the public doesn't know because they're afraid of what's going to happen if the public finds out. They're also afraid of if they can't convict him, then they're going to have real problems in their thinking. They don't care. They just want to get him nailed. And, of course, Ananias can't get anything out of him. And so he flips out. And he sends them off to his son-in-law, the currently acting high priest, who can then convene the Sanhedrin. In verse 58, we read, but Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. Now, Matthew overlaps events here. So I'm going to step outside for a moment and we're going to jump ahead. And I want to look at what's going on with Peter which picks up then at verse 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the the people there, this fellow was with Jesus Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. And after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you're one of them, for your accent gives you away. then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. We find John also records... Gives you a little more, again a little more information. John 18:15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus, because of this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest courtyard. We mentioned this before. All the disciples had fled. Walter Wingren's got John coming back, which makes sense. We assume it's generally accepted that that unnamed disciple is John, that he had ties to the high priest, so he comes into the courtyard. Peter follows them in. First of all, we can argue at least both of them are showing a bit more courage than the others did because they're showing up to see what's going on at least. We don't know much about John's involvement, except that he was there. He doesn't speak out. He's just sort of stands in the background as an observer, which might explain why he also has a little bit more information. But we don't know. We know that he fled. But we know that he came back. Peter, as usual, starts off good. I mean, he shows up and now he's going to prove it, right? Jesus said he was going to uh, deny him, but he said, oh, no, I'm not. I'll stand there with you. And he's going to prove it because he shows up. But he does show up. Okay. You know, he did step out of the boat. Yeah. Okay. But that's as far as it gets because he would have actually been better off if he hadn't have shown up based on what he turned around doing. Because the fact is he's questioned three times. It's interesting depending on which of the gospel passages you read. He's questioned first by a servant girl directly. She says, Hey, aren't I, didn't I see you with Jesus? And you know, no, I don't know. I don't know who he is. Second, he either overhears a different servant girl talking to a crowd saying, Oh, wasn't he with them or the same servant girl saying that a little unclear, depending on which one you're reading. Doesn't matter. And then about an hour later, somebody else identifies him because he's really got a heavy accent because he came from Galilee. You know, it's like Paul came from southern Israel. You all should. So they could recognize him by his accent. (laughs) So they identify him as being with Jesus. And now he the tension is building, right? He's now, and this is an hour after somebody nailed him the first time. And now he goes ballistic. Which we do when we're afraid. Adrenal dump, the best offense, uh, the best defense is a good offense. And he starts cursing. Now understand, he's not using curse words in, in the sense of So the way we would negatively use what what he's doing is saying, well, God judge me and bring death down on me, which is really stupid. If I know anything about who this person is. And so basically he's taking an oath to these people that he has no clue who Jesus is, or at least he has no involvement with him because he's afraid. Does he have reason to be afraid? Sure. The fear isn't what the problem is. It's his response. To the fear that's the problem. Mark 1471 expresses that he began to call curses on him himself, swore to them in uh, as an oath. I don't know this man you're talking about. And of course, as soon as he gets that out. Boy, this thing couldn't be better if it was written by a script writer and filmed. As soon as he gets that out, the rooster crows. And then, of course, in his head, he hears Jesus saying, you know, when the rooster crow, by the time the rooster is crowed twice, you'll have betrayed me three times. And he goes out. And he weeps. And so he betrays Jesus. He demonstrates initial, apparently demonstrating courage. But what was he really demonstrating? Ego and pride. I'm not going to do that we can go a long way motivated by pride but the problem is it doesn't hold up when we get up against the wall and that's what happened that revital got him in but his courage which was self-generated as opposed to god-generated failed him and so he did exactly what jesus told him he was going to do and i bet he wished he'd never come but it doesn't matter See, there's a lot of ways to betray Jesus. The disciples betrayed him as a group in the sense that they just ran off and abandoned him. They didn't deny him; they just fled. But Peter and Judas betrayed him in much more dramatic and, and direct way. We'll look at Judas's reaction to what he did next time. But Peter's reaction is godly sorrow because he weeps and what happens, he's still dealing with the guilt by the time after the resurrection and the, and when he sees Jesus, Jesus has to basically work him through his guilt. But he stuck around to get it worked through. And that's the difference. Because as we talked about last time, the issue is one or another, every one of us betrays Jesus at one time or another. When we live as practical atheists, that's what we're doing. We should be able to identify, not criticize Peter for his actions. But the fact of the matter is, Peter then serves as a good example because he's totally human. He totally blows it. But he repents and he is totally usable. I said numerous times, the thing I love about scripture is it's the biggest collection of losers on the face of the earth, but when they know they're losers, they're usable by God. That's how you know this is, it's real because they don't, nobody's glamorized in scripture. We see them with all their warts and what God is saying is, hey, if I can use them, what's your problem? Because I can use you. Ain't that great? So we don't have to be perfect. Isn't that great? Cause if we did, we'd be in deep trouble because none of us make it. In spite of what we're talking about Wednesday nights with a few denominations that think you can have entire sanctification. Okay. Which means you're perfect. You don't sin any longer. You just make mistakes and errors. Okay. Anyway, moving on. That's for Wednesday night. We'll just <laughs> get onto that later. That's what's happened to Peter. This is going on at the same time. These events are overlapping. This is going on at the same time. All the chaos is going on on the inside. Which brings back up to verse verses 60 and on. So what happens is he's sent by Ananias to Caiaphas, the high priest. So uh, they take him to the high priest. We already said that, well, Luke tells us during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas. So Luke says they are functioning jointly as high priests, even though somehow MacArthur thought one was t- retired. The word of God came to John, son of Zachariah in the desert. So at some point they're working together, dual, dually, dual, dual uh, high priest. And so now they think they've got Jesus where they want him. But I think what the problem was, the assumption was that Ananias was going to have a char, be able to get a charge and actually formally charge Jesus so that when he was brought before the Sanhedrin, then they could adjudicate the charge because it wasn't the Sanhedrin's job to Fine. In other words, Sanhedrin is not supposed to be operating as the prosecutor or as the district attorney. It's not supposed to be writing the charges. It's supposed to function like a, a court, like a judge, so that when somebody is brought before them, they're already brought with the charges. And this is what's got Ananias so flipped out because he couldn't. As much as they're willing to lie and cheat and do whatever they can, they're still sort of kind of playing by the rules at the same time. And so he couldn't bring a charge against him. And so now he's really upset. So he says, okay, it's not. And he sends him off to his poor son-in-law, who then gets nailed with the same problem. So they take him to the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders assembled. And then the chief priest and the, soul, the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus, so they could put him to death, but they didn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward. It's really interesting. They had a lot of false testimony. They were looking for perjured testimony to be able to charge him, but apparently whatever these people were bringing up as charges were ones that Rome wasn't going to be interested in. In other words, they didn't adequately coach him or whatever, and there wasn't time. So the lies they were getting... Maybe he came in a flying saucer. I don't know what they were saying. But whatever it was, it wasn't working. It wasn't giving them what they needed to be able to then find him guilty, finding guilty of a capital crime, and take him then to Rome and say, look, here's what the deal is. So they're getting more and more frustrated because they're not being able to do anything. Finally, two came forward. I don't know. It'd be interesting to know how long this is going on and how many liars they found. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is the testimony these two men brought against you? But Jesus remained silent. Well, we know what they're talking about and they're quoting him correctly. The only problem is they're quoting him out of context. Because it may, we know very clearly that what he was doing was talking about his own death and resurrection. Now, again, this is, trial is illegal on a ton of grounds. As already noted, first place there were no charges, so they shouldn't have even been doing what they were doing. Secondly, they were suborning perjury. Thirdly, this kind of a trial needs to be carried out in public, in the temple, not behind closed doors, at night, privately, in the high priest's home. Again, they are not able, even when they get two people to basically sort of twist his words by taking it out of context and filling it with a meaning that Jesus didn't intend. Jesus doesn't even bother responding to that. We know from Mark 14:57 to 59... Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple in three days and build another not made by man. Yet even their testimony did not agree. So apparently they didn't even have the brains to stand outside and make sure they were saying the same thing. This is not going well. If Jesus wasn't going along with this because this was part of God's program, it wouldn't have taken much to basically mess him up because they were doing a really bad job of trying to railroad him. So this isn't working. First place of the Sanhedrin wouldn't particularly care if he did say he was going to destroy the temple. Doesn't matter to them, partic- or the, the Roman Rome wouldn't particularly care, apparently. So what happens? All right. He t- tries a different tact. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God tell us if you are the Christ the son of God Matthew has him say yes it is as you say Jesus replied but i say to all of you in the future you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on clouds out of heaven all Right they're trying to get him to confess or not confess admit to them that he is claiming to be Christ now, remember what I said earlier, that that in their thinking, that's a political concept. They're looking for the Messiah to come and overthrow Rome. So if he says yes to that, then basically he is admitted to being an insurrectionist. They can find him guilty on that basis. Bring those charges to Rome. Rome will be impressed with that charge and will take action. But even here, he pulls the rug out from him. Because what does he say? Yes, and in the future... You'll see me coming down out of heaven. So he is saying what he's been saying all along. Yes, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to be the political Messiah. That will happen sometime in the distant future. So again, it's he's, he's even given them what they wanted while simultaneously not giving them what they needed. Boy, if he hadn't been who he was, he would have been one good lawyer (laughs) what he's talking about really here is drawing on a couple of old testament passages the first one is daniel 7 13 to 14 In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming from the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power, and all peoples and nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Just as an aside, I I still don't get how anybody thinks any of this stuff has come to pass yet, because I don't... I haven't seen anything like that on the world yet. But what he's saying is he's tying himself back to this Daniel passage and saying, yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I'm the Christ. And this is what you'll see happen, just as Daniel said. But that's in the future. And I don't think Rome would be particularly concerned that they got somebody who's somewhat delusional, thinks he's God and thinks sometime in the distant future he's going to come down out of heaven. You know, They don't care. So it's not helpful, (laughs) as usual. He's also... Referring to Psalm uh, 110, 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion and you will rule in the midst of your enemies. And you can tell that Caiaphas is just so frustrated and fed up by this whole thing. Because what happens in anger? He said, and then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face, struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? First of all, Leviticus 21.10 says, the high priest must not let his hair become unkempt or tear his clothes. He's a high priest. He's never supposed to rend his garments. Even even when a high priest loses a family member where you can grieve and tear your garments, the high priest was not allowed to do that. So he violated, again, he violated the law. They are not supposed to be able, at the same hearing, condemn somebody to death. There's supposed to be a waiting period before they pass sentence for death. Violated the law people are taunting them, hitting them, mocking them. That's a violating the law. You're not to treat a prisoner this way. So this trial was was illegal on so many levels. This is one of those ones, if you had a good attorney to appeal it, I mean, you could get this whole thing thrown out because it's it, so much violation of case law, legal order, and everything. And I haven't listed everything. You can, you know, there are a lot of books written on these aspects of it. But, The only charge they could get that they could find him guilty of was blasphemy because they understood very clearly he was claiming to be God. Which is a little bit like slander. You can't sue somebody for slander and win if because the best defense against slander is truth. And if what they say is true, you can't sue them for slander and you can't convict somebody of blasphemy for claiming to be God if they're God. But that's the only thing they could find him at all guilty of. And by the way, for those who believe that Jesus never claimed to be God, obviously the people who were around at the time understood very clearly he did. So they've, they've charged him with blasphemy. They immediately say, let's crucify him, execute him. He's guilty. The reality of all this says that Evil isn't worried about how evil does things. Evil wants what evil wants. They didn't care. I mean, these were the leaders of Israel. These were the people who were supposed to see justice done. They didn't care. They hated him. They wanted him out. And they were going to find something to find him guilty of no matter what. And they couldn't. It, what's fascinating is they get these huge number of witnesses coming in to lie about him to perjure they accept perjured testimony, and none of it does any good because he was in control the whole time. What do they finally get at him he, by his own words in speaking the truth, they twist those and convict him on his own words because they can't convict him off of anybody else's actions, see because he's in control. It's no wonder they're angry and frustrated because they don't, they can't understand what's going on. We rig the court, we control the court, and still it's not working. Because they figured once they had him under lock and key, it'd be all over. And so, the whole situation is outrageous. But Jesus allows it. And so what's the end result of this trial? Verse 20, uh, chapter 27, verse 1, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders and the people came to the decision to put him to death. See, they, they had to sort of take a recess because everybody was so whipped up. And so they broke. And a little bit later, they made the decision to put him to death. They reconfirmed in a more calm manner. They decided what they were going to charge him with, which was, that Rome would care about, which even blasphemy wasn't anything particularly that Rome would have cared about. And it's sedition. And they bound him over and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. We read in 22, Luke twenty two sixty six to 23, 1. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together. And Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. And Jesus answered, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will remain seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they asked, are you then the Son of God? And he replied, you are right in saying I am. Then they said, why do we need more testimony? You've heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. See? Son of God, they knew exactly what he was saying, that he was God. And they said, okay, we don't, that's it. We finally got him. We don't need to do anything more. And so they sent him off to Pilate because they want this to be done. Why were they so concerned? Why didn't they just take him out and execute him, figuring they'd get away with it? Back to being afraid of the people. If they send him off to Pilate, Rome convicts him, Rome executes him, then the people are not going to all flip out and come after them. This stuff is all about protecting power, protecting self, protecting image. And and they're going to get away with it. So what happens? The only charge they end up with is blasphemy. And it's without merit since he was God. But the kangaroo court sends him to Pilate. And we'll look at that trial next year, next week. (laughs) Well, pretty soon I'm going to be able to say that, but. We're not quite there yet. Next week. So what have we seen? We've seen the outrages of the Jewish court. We've seen the betrayal, um, the abandonment by the disciples and the betrayal by Peter. Next time we'll look at the justice of Rome and the consequences of another betrayal, that of Judas. But there's a number of points that we can take from these two trials. First, it wasn't the Jews who were guilty of Jesus' death. First of all, it was only some of the leaders and not even all of them. We know jo- Joseph of Arimathea was part of the Sanhedrin, but he did not consent to Jesus' death, which meant he left in frustration or irritation at this whole thing. He either didn't show up or he left before any sentence was passed and didn't want to have anything to do with it. And there's no reason to think he was the only one. Okay, so this was just some. Because remember, by the time this is all said and done, many of the Jews became his followers and are still becoming his followers. And so this was misused to become a foundation for anti-Semitism, to say the Jews were Christ killers, and also for replacement theology to say the church replaces Israel. But that's not the case because, as we said, all of us are guilty of what's happened here, not any specific racial group. Second, it was God, it was Jesus who was in control of all of this, Okay, right from right from the outset, no court, no people, no individuals, no group could do anything against him. But what he allowed them to do. Remember, we looked at last time where he said to Peter after Peter chopped off one of the guards ears, he says, do you think I cannot call my father? And he'll once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. How then would this be scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus was allowing it. He could have stopped it any time he wanted. Nobody had any power over him. And so all the pain, all the injustice, all of the suffering was for our benefit, was for our salvation, and was for the restoration of his of God's creation. Okay. And finally, we need to realize that when it comes to the bottom line is that nobody can do anything against us but what God allows. And that evil, even when it has the appearance of civility, is out to destroy righteousness. And so we shouldn't be surprised. When we offer the the gift of life to somebody that's lost, they may nicely reject that offer. Oh, I'm so glad you have what you believe, and I have what I believe. And isn't just all wonderful. And then there's the other kinds that will spit in your face. And then there's the kinds that will put you that will kill you on the spot. But it all boils down to the same thing. When the gloves come off, rejection can be ugly. But rejection is rejection, whether it's instilling gloves or taking them off. But you see, what are we called to do? What did Jesus do? Calm, clear, never reacting out of anger, never reacting out of hostility. We're called with Judas acting out of love. We are to follow Jesus' example. We, Our responsibility is to bring God glory by how we interact and how we respond. And we can't do it out of our own strength. We will betray. We will fail. We will deny when we're trying to do it out of our own strength. Just because we're fallen and we're human and we're fearful. But when we're walking with the Lord and dependent and filled with the Holy Spirit, we will be who we're called to be. Remember, again, Peter did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit when he's doing these things. What's our excuse? I keep repeating it, but it's important to remember that we're not talking parallels here because we have something that Peter and the disciples didn't have, and that's the indwelling Spirit. It's our responsibility to give God the glory and to offer the message of hope, but we're not going to drag anybody into heaven that doesn't want to go. God won't even do that. In Matthew 10:34 to 39, we had read, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to turn a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We're not to expect people to appreciate the gospel. And sometimes they do. But why? Because the Holy Spirit's working in them. And other times they don't, and they'll be very nice about it. And Like I said, that's really sad because that means they're almost impossible to reach. It's the one who get really head up when you offer it that more likely the Holy Spirit's ragging on. And that's why they don't want to hear it. So we're not to be concerned about the consequences of obedience. Because that's God's, in God's hands. Instead, we're to go out, spread the gospel, making disciples, because the, the benefit for us is pleasing God, having his approval, and bringing him glory. Sorrow is divine. Sorrow is reigning on all the thrones of the universe, and the crown of all crowns has been one of thorns. There have been many books that treat the sympathy of sorrow, but only one that bids us glory in tribulation and count it all joy when we fall into diver afflictions so that we may be associated with that great fellowship of suffering of which the incarnate Son of God is the head and through which he is carrying a redemptive conflict to a glorious victory over evil. If we suffer with him, we will also reign with him.